Well, good morning, church. It's always a blessing for us to be together. Uh, Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for this time we have to gather together as your people, to gather in song and prayer, uh, to hold people like the Connors up as we hold them close to our hearts and as we know you already hold them close to yours. As we take communion together and now as we open our hearts to your word. God, we pray that you would help us to hear what it is that each one of us needs to hear. That you would speak to us in new and unexpected ways. And that we would listen, that we would learn, and that we would live differently. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. In Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. We find these words. Now, when Jesus came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. He said, and what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Then Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because no human has shown this to you. Rather, my father who is in heaven has shown you. I tell you that you are Peter, the rock, and I'll build my church on this rock. The gates of death won't be able to stand Against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Anything you fasten on earth will be fastened in heaven. Anything you loosen on earth will be loosened in heaven. Now we'll we'll talk a little bit about what he's he's referencing here when he talks about fastening and loosening things in just a moment. But what I want us to have in in our minds and our hearts for the rest of our time together this morning. And James has already helped invite us into this this idea. And it's this, that as followers of Jesus, our true identity can only be found in Jesus's true identity. Now, when we say true identity, what we're having to wrestle with here is that we have the habit of sometimes giving Jesus other attributes, other other aspects of his character, other, other things that we're focused on than the things that are true about Jesus. And when we start to add things to who Jesus is, or when we focus on aspects of Jesus that we prefer and we ignore the things about Jesus that we find to be too challenging and it makes us uncomfortable, so we, we'd rather focus on something else. When we do that, we end up shaping our own lives as disciples, shaping our souls in ways that we don't always understand. Once we're in a place of having those kinds of blind spots, we need somebody to help open our eyes again. And that's what Jesus is trying to do in this story with his closest friends and followers when he says, you know, who, who are people out there? What, what, are they, what are they saying about me? How do you think they see me? What are their hopes that, that they're longing to be fulfilled, that they're, they're just kind of attaching to me because they're hoping I'm the one who's going to 
and scratch that itch for them, whether or not that's true. And so they say, well, you know, there's all kinds of rumors about you, Jesus. Some people think you're John the Baptist back from the dead. Some some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're Jeremiah. I mean, they, they all feel like you've got to be some kind of prophet. And then he asks them a deeper question, which isn't just what everyone else, what, what, what are they thinking about me? What do they say about me? How do you see me? Who do you say that I am? And that, that's a question all of us need to be wrestling with every single time we think about Jesus, every time we relate to Jesus, every time we, we wrestle with, okay, what kind of follower am I? What kind of Christian am I proving myself to be in the ways that I'm interacting with other people, the ways I'm moving through the world? If, if the only way for us to become who we're truly supposed to be is by seeing Jesus clearly for who he truly is, then we need to be honest with our own hopes, our own ideas, our own longings, our own fears, and how those things are affecting the way we think about and see and interact with, relate to Jesus as our master, as the one who we're trying to figure out exactly how we're going to live life in light of how he has shown us it's possible to live life. So because we become more, we, we become more and more like the version of Jesus we envision. This is absolutely the case whether we're talking about Jesus or we're talking about God the Father or we're talking about the Holy Spirit, when we focus on certain things or, or if we're going to be really honest, when we add layers to them that aren't actually there, we end up creating space in that, that confusion where we're going to give ourselves permission to do those things, to, to live those ways, even if the actual Jesus would never talk like that or interact with someone that way or embrace that approach to life. We start to, to make up stories that we convince ourselves are true stories. So who do we say Jesus is? Who do we desperately want him to be? We've got to have a humility here as people who are on the way of becoming more and more the disciples that we promised to be. We haven't, we haven't gotten there yet. We aren't perfect yet in our ability to do that. And so we, we want to have that humility of spirit that can, that can confess the ways in which we feel like God's already working in our lives and, and drawing us closer to the way of Christ, as well as the other things in our lives where we know there's, there's still a long way left to go. We cannot help but see Jesus through the, the limitations of our own vision this will always be true for us, this side of heaven. So we need to have the humility that this truth demands. That, that when I talk about Jesus, I'm not actually talking about the fact of Jesus, the, the historical reality of Jesus, as much as I'm talking about my sense of who he is, my understanding of who he is. And that's always partial. It's always developing. It's always growing. We, we need to always remind one another that the real Jesus is always better than we can see right now. We're, we're, we're going to see more. God's going to help us see more. That's what Jesus says to, to Peter when he says, you're the, 
You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. He says, blessed are you. You didn't come up with that on your own. You didn't see that on your own. My father in heaven helped you see it. But here's the thing. In case Peter was tempted to have a sense that because God gave him some vision that he had perfect spiritual vision, if you've still got your Bibles open to to Matthew chapter 16, the very next story, Peter starts proving that he sees some truth about Jesus, but he doesn't understand the full truth about Jesus at all. Because Jesus, after this this conversation, he starts talking about the fact that he's going to have to suffer. He's going to have to be rejected by all the religious leaders. And he's going to die, and then he's going to be raised again. And Peter pulls him aside and says, hey, why are you talking about all this negative stuff? God forbid that any of that stuff happen. God would never let those things happen to you, Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It's the very next story. So these moments of clarity that we have, just like Peter, where we suddenly see Jesus so much more than we ever have before, we see the truth about him. We still need to have humility that our understanding of that truth we're encountering, it's not perfect. That it's okay. That we need to confess that limitation so that we don't get ourselves into a place where we act like we're the one or we are the ones who see the full truth of Jesus and nobody else does. So we're going to set ourselves up to stop seeking for that truth for the rest of our lives and we're going to start to behave as if we own it and we're defending it and we're defining it. And if anybody doesn't see it the way we do, if anyone doesn't see Jesus the way we do, then they have to be 100% wrong. Right, that puts us in a place of being moral authorities and judges that Jesus never asks us to actually try to fulfill those kinds of roles in people's lives. And it's our misunderstanding, it's our partial understanding of who Jesus is that would ever lead us to the place to think that an effective way to call people into the kingdom is to criticize them there. It matters that you and I know that what we see that's true about Jesus is not an achievement. It's a gift that God's given us. And God hasn't fully blessed us with the ability to see all the truth there is to see. The conversation doesn't stop there. You know, Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. He sees that, but he doesn't actually see all the implications of what that really means. But then Jesus turns around because there's this connection between our vision of Jesus and our vision of ourselves. So he doesn't just keep talking about who who do they see when they look at him. He says, okay, well, let me tell you what I see when I look at you as my followers. He's speaking directly to Peter here, but in some ways he's speaking to all of us, right? Okay, you, you told me who you think I am. Let me tell you what I see. You're the rock. Peter, and on this rock, I'll build my church. And I can give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you loosen on earth will be loosened in heaven. Whatever you you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Okay, now, what's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about the fact that it was common for rabbis of that day and time 
when they're looking at the 613 different commandments, the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots, right? They, they have to make some decisions about which commandments still carry weight, right? That, that they need to be bound to the life of somebody who's trying to, to have a healthy relationship with God. And what aspects of those commandments or, or what kinds of approaches to the commandments need to be loosened. They don't need to be placed on people of God as a burden. They, they need to be lifted. Now, the tricky thing here is Jesus is not the only teacher who's making decisions about which commandments to turn the volume up on and which commandments to turn the volume down on. There are other teachers, Pharisees, Sadducees, other teachers of the law, legal experts who all have opinions about this is why somebody comes to Jesus and says, if you have to summarize all of the 613 commands down to one, what would you do? Right? What's the greatest command? Which one needs to be bound the most, intensified the most? Which one do we need to focus? If we have to choose, which one should we choose? And Jesus says, love, love the Lord your God with everything you are and everything you have and love your neighbor the way you want to be loved. Right? All the other laws and commandments depend on this. Well, Jesus goes into more detail than that throughout his teaching ministry. So if you go back to, to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7, he gets into this run there where he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And in every case, he's binding a commandment, he's intensifying it, he's turning up the volume in a way that makes people who are have figured out how to follow those commands with the least amount of effort, he says, yeah, you're missing the point. So you've heard it said that, you know, you shouldn't commit adultery, but I say to you, don't even look at somebody like they're not a person, they're just an object for your pleasure. Don't do that. You know, you've heard it said that you can, you can love people who are good to you and you can hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is taking the commands that have to do with how we relate to other people and he says, those are commands you better focus on more than you ever have before. Now when it comes to saying, well, it's the Sabbath and somebody's hurting, but I can't lift a finger to do any work on the Sabbath, he says, loosen that command. There's a governing principle for Jesus when it comes to which commands are supposed to be the ones we pay the most attention to and which commands there's some, there's some room for us to make some decisions about exactly how much are we going to follow them and how are we going to apply them. Here's the governing principle. Are you helping someone else experience through you the love God has for them? Are you helping someone else experience through you the love God has for them. Now, it's this interesting image, the kingdom, keys, right? I'm going to give you the, the keys of the kingdom, Peter. Now, he's not giving him the keys to the kingdom car. He's not telling him, you get to decide where the kingdom goes. The, the image... And Jesus intensifies the image when he talks about the gates of death. It seems to me it's about who is going to know through the church that they're welcome into the kingdom and who's going to think we locked them out. Because the church can absolutely, intentionally or accidentally, 
get in the way of someone encountering the kingdom of heaven the way God wants them to. We can be the ones who make them feel like they're not welcome here. We can be the ones who give them an impression of Jesus and what he cares about and who he is that turns them away. And I, I want us to, to understand the challenge here is that Jesus wants us to see ourselves the way he does, not just in the sense that he believes in us and sees potential in us, but also to have a clear sense of if our role is essential, then if we get off in the wrong direction, there are devastating consequences, not just for us, but for the world. I'm convinced that throughout the New Testament, the church is the hope of the world because the church is supposed to be the living embodiment of Jesus. For the rest of time, until Jesus comes back, we represent, we invite people into that kind of divine encounter. It it better happen through us because, brothers and sisters, there are people you are around every single day that the only version of God they're going to actually encounter and be awake to is you. Giving you the keys to the kingdom. So, Peter, who are you going to make feel welcome? And who are you going to make feel like they're locked out? Man, that's a challenge. It's a challenge. And it, it means that, that we have to have faith to see the church and our roles w- within the, the church in the same way that Jesus does, with, with not just the potential, but the responsibility. You know, I, I've always thought <clears throat> Peter must have loved this nickname. You know, on, on one hand, it's the name of Josh Hardcastle's favorite person in pop culture, The Rock. But even if it's Rocky, you know, whatever it is, it's one of those nicknames that it seems to carry with it a lot of strength, right? He says, you're this bedrock. I'm going to build the church on you. And not just on Peter, but on all the disciples, right? They're, they're together. He says, this is, this is the foundation, you guys. And you're welcome is the foundation of all the work I'm going to do through this kingdom of heaven on the earth. But if, again, if you've got your Bible open, you go to that very next story where Peter and Jesus aren't seeing the truth about Jesus in the same way. You know what Jesus says to him? Get behind me, Satan, which had this thing. It's an understatement of the year. But then he keeps talking and it gets, I think, more personally uncomfortable because Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not a rock anymore. You're a stone that's causing me to stumble. Don't you think for the rest of his life, Peter wrestled with, am I being a rock or a stone? Every time somebody said his name, the name Jesus gave him. And I'm guessing that's not just a challenging question that Peter needs to ask. It's a question we all need to ask as disciples of Jesus. Are we the bedrock of welcome? Are we that unshakable foundation of grace? Or are we a stone that's in the way? We've locked up the gates to the kingdom and we've made it hard for people to even get up to the gates to figure out if they can rattle it and try to find a way in. 
man, this is a challenging story because it's not just something that happened to one guy 2,000 years ago. It's a story that's still unfolding in our lives right now. If we have the courage to face it, church, are we the foundation of grace or are we a stumbling stone that's making it hard to believe that grace is possible? Or that maybe church is the last place you're going to experience that welcome, that forgiveness, that embrace. The church should be aggressively fighting against the powers of death that are tearing the world apart. Preachers have been pointing this out for as long as I've been alive, but I'm going to point it out. When it says that the gates of death can't prevail, it means we're taking the fight to death. We're not sitting here huddled behind the gates of the kingdom hoping that death never gets to us. Right? Walls, fences, whatever, those are defensive structures. Those aren't The, the, the image that, that we have at times, that the world is, is an inhospitable place for us and that all these, these people and all these movements and all of, all of these agendas are allied against us and, and we need to just stay together and we need to stay safe and we need to be with people who look like us and think like us and believe like us and, that, and we just hope other people like us find their way in and if, if they look enough like us, then we'll let them, we'll let them, no. The church is supposed to be taking the fight to death. Not coming up with reasons why it's okay for us to let somebody else try to fight that fight. But let me be really clear about this. I think the first battle that you and I as a church together, what we need to aggressively attack is any vision of Jesus that's more about power than self-giving love. Because I'm afraid that the church is risking losing its witness in our world because we have replaced Jesus, the one who embodies self-giving love for the sake of another, and we've turned him into a cultural icon who will win our battles for us, which is exactly what Peter wanted him to be. Peter wanted him to be some national, militaristic leader that was going to help Israel be great again, be at the top again, defeat all their enemies again, get their way again. And every single time this nationalistic hope of Israel starts to take over, Jesus says, I love this nation, I love these people, but I love all nations and I love all people and you don't have a unique right to say that you're my favorite and therefore everybody else has to get out of the way and they're going to suffer unless they, they give up and let you call all the shots. That's what Peter wants when he says you're the Messiah. He says, you're the political national leader I have been waiting for my whole life. And then when Jesus says, you know what, I'm actually not that, Peter. I'm somebody who's going to give my life to save not just Israel, but to save everyone on, on the planet. I'm going to go through things that you don't want to have to face. I'm going to be mistreated. I'm going to be disregarded and thrown away. And I'm going to come back. But you don't get to narrowly define me and tell me who I have to be because it's, 
It's what you think you need me to be. Look, I know it just got uncomfortable in here. That's what happens when you start talking about idols. People get uncomfortable and they get mad at me. And they tell me I went from preaching to meddling or something like that. When you start to feel uncomfortable in church, you need to pay close attention to why. I'm not saying it's always good reasons, but I'll tell you often, when someone on stage is talking about something that I don't want to face in my own life, I come up with reasons why I don't have to listen. Jesus didn't come so that the American church could figure out how we can run the world, and if we can run the world, then we'll save the world. That's not what Jesus came to show us. He came to show us that the only way we can save the world is by giving ourselves away for the sake of it. Now, we either trust that he was telling us the truth and that he is the truth, or we think we know better than he does. By the way, last time I checked, he's the master and we're the disciples. And if we start to remake Jesus in our own image... We're the ones trying to run things. And it won't result in us running anything. It'll result in us running away from him and not knowing it. Brothers and sisters, it's nothing new for people of faith to put their faith in the wrong things and call it God or call it Jesus or call it the Holy Spirit. And the only way we can be honest and clear-eyed about it is for us to remind one another That Jesus is better. He's more than our narrow definitions and and our self-centered focus areas of of what we think we, we would love for him to be and we would love for him to do. There's a reason you feel like as much as politics might get under your skin and get you worked up, there's a reason you have a sneaking suspicion. It's part of what's wrong. It is part of what's wrong. And if we're not careful, we're going to be part of what's wrong. Jesus looks at us and says, the church isn't fragile, but it is possible for the church to get brittle, to become hard-hearted, to not be a bedrock of grace and hope and, and power, but to instead be a bunch of stones that aren't good for much of anything but tripping people up. Jesus is better. Jesus is more The question is, do we have the courage to try to see it? We need to be attacking the things in our world that are tearing us apart. We shouldn't be making friends with the things that are tearing us apart. We shouldn't be giving our hearts to the things that are dividing us and causing toxic interactions and relationships. That that shouldn't be a part of what the church is, is doing. And when we do it, it's not so much that we're locking people out of the kingdom. It's that we're using the keys of the kingdom. We're opening the gate and we're leaving and we don't even know that's what's happening. No one's going to make us stay in the kingdom. We have to choose it over and over and over again. And I don't know about you, but I have a lot of work to do inside my life and in my heart to recommit myself time and again to see the truth and the beauty of who Jesus really is and not the sad version of him I've made up to make me feel better in short amounts of time and try to make things make sense. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, he's more. He's better. And we need to look again. We're going to sing together now. And as we do, 
Uh, my prayer and my hope for us this week is that we will stop trying to find something in addition to Jesus to give us the future we want and then calling whatever that is Jesus, that we would open the eyes of our souls again to the truth that Jesus is who he says he is. And we need to listen, not just once, but always. Let's stand together and sing.